Hello, everyone, and welcome to Subject to Cross, a new podcast on criminal law. I am host, Caroline Donato. And I am co-host, Pete Kratza. Both from the law firm McElroy Harvey in Westchester, Pennsylvania. We are your friendly neighborhood criminal defense attorneys here to talk about everything criminal defense. And here we go. Good morning, Pete. Good morning, Caroline. And this is our first formal podcast. How exciting. Indeed. Well, Pete, I think it's best if we first tell the listeners who we are, what we do, how long we've been doing it, etc. So why don't you tell everybody who you are? How old I am, you mean? Sure. My name is Peter Kratza. I've been a criminal defense lawyer since 1994. I have always practiced criminal defense. I think it's fair to say I fell into it, but I love it. And I'm old. <laughs> Is that it? I'm really impressed at how clear and concise that was. Yeah, I'm, well, I mean, Caroline's being nice because we're on a microphone, but she reminds me about how old I am every day. Um, and the thing that I like most about being a criminal defense lawyer is the variety of cases and the fact that we can help many people. I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about being criminal defense lawyers. Oh, my God, I didn't turn my phone <laughs> off. Um, do we need to redo it? No, that's fine. Oh, Keep right. going. Um, but uh, I think generally we represent people just like you, listener. Well, do you think we have more than one listener? We'll, we'll find out, but uh, okay. it might just be your kids and your wife right now. So. Mocking me. Um, but in any event, I think we represent everyday people with uh, problems that they don't anticipate nor that did they ask for, um, and I enjoy helping them. Well, my name is Caroline Donato, and I'm a criminal defense attorney as well. Uh, I've been a criminal defense attorney since about 2014, um, although it was, it was quite a hybrid. I graduated law school in 2014. I was hired as a business attorney with the law firm, uh, but really... I felt as though criminal was my calling. It is my background. It's something I've always been interested in. And in, in other words, <laughs> Caroline misled us to believe that she wanted to be a business attorney in order to be hired, but had designs to take over my practice uh, even then. Well, that's not even fair or true. <laughs> <laughs> I did genuinely want to try business law. Um, for the viewers listening, my father is a criminal defense attorney. I was very close with him growing up. Criminal defense was something I always did as a hobby, and I was just interested in. I wanted to try something different. Uh, I, I did not try to get hired by this firm. I had a job with oh. a criminal defense attorney. Ooh, yes, that's true. That is true. Burn. <laughs> um, but I just felt as though it was... And just something I'm driven towards really naturally, and I enjoy it. And I'm not trying to take over Pete Kratz's practice. It's something we have together now, and it's, I think it's nice. Uh, why don't you tell everybody how our practice works? How our practice works? Well, first of all, it's been an adjustment for me. Uh, most criminal defense lawyers, and I'm no exception, are kind of uh, lone wolves. Uh, we generally share a common streak about not wanting to be told what to do, uh, and that we can do it the, the best way. So when Caroline started working with me, I think that it was an adjustment for both of us because Caroline was used to working with business lawyers, and they're boring. But uh, that's true, right? Actually, Well, I you don't have to agree to that. <laughs> um, 
the way our practice works is that generally we work cases together. We also have uh, cases where one of us will be the primary, if not exclusive, lawyer. But we are there to uh, throw things off of each other, bounce things off of each other if we need to do that. So in cases where we're going to work together, we'll meet with the client together. And one of the things that I've learned from uh, practicing for 25 years is that it's really important that a client is aware of the dynamic of the representation from the outset. There are a lot of criminal defense practices where a client will meet with somebody or speak with somebody and expect that they're going to be their primary lawyer. And next thing you know, a month later, somebody else is representing them. And I, I, don't, I don't find that to be professional or, frankly, fair to the client. So uh, Caroline and I will prepare cases together. Uh, we can talk about the mechanics of, uh, of representation if it's not too boring at some point. But I think we work very well together. I think the mechanics of the representation sometimes is just organic. So yeah. One of us will take a case from the outset. The other one will jump in. It just depends who's lead and who's not and what is needed. And we both have different strengths. And we bring them to the table. What are your strengths? Uh, writing, I think, is a is a big strength of mine. Um, that was trial. a rhetorical question. I mean, I'm aware that you have strengths. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, it was yeah. rhetorical. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was rhetorical to a degree that I don't want you to believe that. I don't uh, believe you have strengths. Oh, I know. But I want to know what you think your strengths are. I think my strengths are writing. I think my strengths are trial preparation and seeing the whole field from the outside of a case. I think... My strength is the law and being able to research the law, understand the law, apply the law, the law to the facts. Um, and I think that strength is something that just keeps naturally growing. One of the strengths you have that I admire is that you just argue. You argue until your face turns blue. <laughs> it doesn't matter what the law says sometimes. You just argue. And I think that's why we have a nice dynamic because, you know, you're the... You're the arguer, and I'm the, I don't know, I, I'm more linear in a certain sense. I agree with that. Yeah, I think that it plays well. I've argued since I was a child. Um, but I think that it, it, it uh, at times, well, not at times, uh, frequently, I appreciate um, the fact that if I'm making an argument and you have a different perspective, even if it's contrary to my perspective, I mean, I don't. I disregard that, but, but the point is that, I, that uh, a lot of times you will uh, give me a perspective that is, that is helpful uh, to either making a separate argument and not recognizing an argument or, or uh, enhancing my argument. And I agree. You are much more professional than I am. <laughs> well, on that note, let's talk, about, um, let's talk about an interesting case or previous interesting cases just to give the listeners an idea of what we do. Uh, I had one recently that I wanted to talk about, and I actually received my client's approval. I'm not going to say the client's name, but I did receive approval to discuss this case. This was, it started uh, around Christmas time, and it was an alleged series of thefts from Rite Aid's CVSs. My client actually went into a Rite Aid one day to return a dog leash. Uh, he had pre That's why cats are better. <laughs> he had purchased it properly and legally. He didn't need it. He returned it. The uh, teller told him he couldn't return it at that place, so he took it, 
and went to another Rite Aid trying to return it. It wasn't returnable, so he just kept it. Needless to say, that wasn't a theft because he purchased it. However, that one incident of him going to a Rite Aid trying to return something he legally purchased previous to that date turned into he was charged with three additional separate theft allegations ranging from summary offenses to felonies. And here's why. The teller, it seems to me in hindsight, the teller reported a theft. I don't quite understand why of the dog leash. I don't quite understand why. You call clerks at a at a pharmacy or a, a store tellers? Uh, maybe I'm I saying think it's wrong. a clerk. Okay, right? I'll adjust that. Sales representative? Is a teller just in a bank? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I haven't had all my coffee yet. Okay. Everyone, but I think, ahead. understands yeah. who the person is. Well, no, they're going to think that he robbed a bank, for goodness sake. Okay, this he didn't rob. We're he gives you writing. permission to, to talk about this, and the next thing you know, he's going to be a bank robber. I already screwed up. Here no, we go. Well, just keep going. So the clerk uh, somehow believed he robbed a dog leash from this Rite Aid. So pictures were being taken of him at the Rite Aid, walking into the Rite Aid, walking out of the Rite Aid. Uh, they were pixelated, they were fuzzy, Um, but what was most interesting to me when analyzing all four cases in conjunction was that the one Rite Aid case, which spurred all these identifications of him in additional CVSs with a different MO, not even, it was beauty products in the CVSs, it was one dog leash at a Rite Aid. They must have thought that this uh, uh, perpetrator had a very pampered dog. Was it a gold studded dog leash beauty products for people oh oh, okay yeah. okay all right so well he, explain so in other words um there were there was camera footage of these of these uh thefts yes okay there's video there was video and pictures taken from a video of all four of all four and they believed that it was your guy yes so why did they think it was your guy they thought it was my guy because they believed the features between the cvs subject and the Rite Aid subject or suspect uh, were so similar that it must be my client. And it's always generated because he wanted to return a dog leash? Yes. So the features of the suspect was CVS. Uh, first and foremost, it was a series of, as I told you, beauty product um, thefts. I mean, he would wipe And they off. were human. Human, <laughs> yes, were not, not for dog dogs. beauty products. And, and he would basically wipe the shelves of the beauty products. Um, he was always wearing the same outfit. Wipe the, in other words, the person would take all these beauty products? Take hundreds of dollars of beauty products. And then walk out? I mean, it was felony theft. And then walk out? Yeah. So, which is entirely different than trying to return a, a dog leash. Right, and that was my other argument. Why is somebody stealing something and standing in front of a clerk, scratching his neck, looking up, while the clerk is on their, uh, I guess... Whatever. Different modus operandi. Well, yeah. Well, the clerk is clearly trying to work with the computer system to do something, and he's just standing there, you know, idly. So how does this guy become aware of the fact that he has all these complaints? Does he just start getting them in the mail, and do they eventually try to arrest him? Two ways, yes. The first way is Facebook. The police department put um, pictures of the CVS suspect all over Facebook and the photos from the Rite Aid dog leash photo on Facebook. So in other words, there's a legitimate picture of him trying to return a $5 dog leash. Yes. And then there's a picture of this guy. $20 dog leash. $20. um, 
And then there's a picture of, of the other guy who is uh, ch- like wiping the shelves of, of beauty products. Yes. Okay. Hmm. And one person... It's a nightmare. It is a nightmare. One person called in uh, to say, I can identify the Rite Aid photo. That's my client, which that's true. That is him. And then one of the officers within that police department took it upon himself to then identify him in every other CVS. Was it one police department that charged all four? Yes. So he starts getting summons in the mail. Uh, I'm, I'm effectuating his arraignment, making sure that he doesn't have warrants, just outstanding for his arrest. We're answering to these charges. And it wasn't until the first court date because we, we could an figure. arraignment meaning that you get him on bail right. so that they're not going to knock down his door and, and arrest him for stealing beauty products. Exactly. And we couldn't figure out for the life of us in the beginning how he was even identified as the CVS suspect because that's what we were seeing at first all over Facebook. And this, this suspect had clearly not blonde hair. My client had, he was almost white. He was that blonde. This suspect in CVS was much bigger than my client. And he was always wearing khakis and clothes and a big backpack. My client in the Rite Aid photo didn't. And he had amazing eyelashes and brows. The makeup. Oh, okay. Yes. I think he, (laughs) I think that suspect was probably reselling that makeup elsewhere. Oh, I get it. I don't think it was for his own personal use. Oh, all right. And even on Facebook, when, when we looked at the comments, and our assistant Donna was really helpful in this, she would keep up with that. People were identifying the CVS suspect as somebody else that they'd had trouble with. So the first hearing that we went to is when we realized that the identification of my client was linked to every other CVS by virtue of the fact that that Rite Aid dog leash return was identified and one officer then said, that must be the CVS Mm. suspect. And it was a mess for a couple of months for the client. Ultimately, um, I was able to work with the police department to have them recognize that he wasn't the gentleman in the CVS photos. How'd you do that? Logic. Oh. I I spoke on the phone, wrote emails, um, explained circumstances that to me were apparent, uh, gave them my arguments that this is what I'm going to say to the court. Uh, It doesn't make sense that the modus operandi is different. It doesn't make sense that... He looks completely different, but for the fact that they both have close haircuts, it doesn't make sense that somebody who is committing these felony thefts would be standing at a Rite Aid, not even a CVS, but a Rite Aid, just looking up at the sky while the clerk is doing something on the computer. That's not somebody who's stealing. That's somebody who's returning something, and that's what he was doing. So did you speak with the client before the uh kind of opening the defense playbook yes to the i told him that was my strategy uh because we don't always do that we don't always do that but in this particular case i didn't see a downside to giving an open window into the defense to the officers uh, before showcasing it before a judge who we his case was assigned to a judge that i thought would understand the practicality of this uh, did and they ever figure out who actually did it i believe they i don't know but I believe they should because multiple people on Facebook identified the suspect as someone they had dealt with and where to find him. Oh. And that was part of the argument. You have people telling you, you're asking people on Facebook to tell you who he is, and they are telling you exactly who he is and where to find him, yet you still insist it's my client who looks nothing like this person. So that was quite frustrating also to my client. 
and What about his family. the social media stuff? Did you do anything with that? Yeah, so we got the we got the criminal cases, the three criminal cases were withdrawn. And then what do you do to explain what you do uh, once you get them withdrawn? Well, I will. The expungement? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'll get to okay. that, but that left. Hey, I'm supposed to be asking questions. No, I'm glad. Don't, don't take that attitude with me. I'll walk out of the studio. Please don't. Okay. So we, after the criminal cases were withdrawn prior to the expungement of his record, we also had to address the actual Rite Aid case, which was a non-traffic case. When cases, as you know, Pete, and just letting everybody know, are charged as summary offenses and there's no other underlying criminal charge, a misdemeanor or a felony, they are treated as non-traffic and they're given a summary trial date rather than a preliminary hearing for criminal cases, misdemeanors and felonies. And maybe one episode will we'll go in a little more detail into that nuance. But he had his non-traffic case outstanding on the dog leash. The clerk, who is allegedly the victim, did not appear. The Commonwealth wanted a continuance, and I objected. And uh, the officer who stood in for the affiant actually, you know, kind of didn't raise an issue with it because he understood what was going on, and that case was ultimately dismissed. The case where it actually was him? Yes. Why did they think it was a theft? Because the clerk made some allegation. Well, like what? That I he, don't know. That he had, didn't actually buy the dog leash there and was trying to game them for 20 bucks? That's still the mystery. We don't know why she would have said that, mm. but she didn't appear. There's a dog pun there somewhere, <laughs> but I just can't think of it. Um, well, the other aspect that we had to address, which is prevalent in just about all of our cases, is the reputation um, angle. The fact that social media has his photo had his photo all over Facebook claiming that he was an alleged thief. And that really hurt his reputation. He was trying to get a job. And then you just Google his name. Not in the beauty industry, please don't. No, me. not in no. the beauty industry. Right. So another aspect of it, and I commend the officer who was at that last hearing, is I asked the court to order that police department to remove the, the Facebook posts. And the officer didn't even have a problem with that. And he actually followed up with me, you know, called my cell and said, hey, it's done. Just wanted to let you know. So I appreciate oh, that. that's nice. I'm yeah. glad you asked the judge to order that because I don't think that the judge had any authority to order that. No, he didn't. And when I asked the judge to order that, the officer jumped in and said, we'll just take care of it. Okay. Yeah. It, I, I really appreciated that officer. Um, so after that, once the case is withdrawn and dismissed, then we filed for expungement. And that's the process we're in now. I'm not I don't think it's quite complete because it takes about six months for it to be fully complete, but those charges should be off his record. Uh, his face is off Facebook. But nonetheless, people saw it, and that was really troubling for that client. Yeah, that's a common issue. Expungement basically means that when charges are either dismissed or you're acquitted, in other words, found not guilty um, or withdrawn, uh, as they were in Caroline's case, that we can then move to destroy records, publicly accessible records, from the internet uh, and from uh, what, where they normally go is the state police database. In other words, even if it's a local police department that charges someone with a crime, if it, let's say, like in Caroline's case, in error, um, then we can, those, those uh, charges go electronically to the state police in Harrisburg, and that's your official criminal record through the uh, state of Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And you're entitled to have 
those records expunged in that instance or in the instance, for instance, if you're acquitted. Um, it does take some time, but the, the issue becomes in this day and age with social media that there might be newspaper articles on the internet about the arrest. Uh, in Caroline's case, police blotters, you know, where they like to publicize whether they're asking for help identifying somebody on Facebook or whether on their own website. So it's significant in that case that they did take it down from their Facebook. Um, normally, we don't always have that luck, especially when it's in the paper. Yeah, the paper you can't do anything about. Um, but, um, you know, the that poor guy, uh, it sounds like he went through the ringer. He did. Yeah. He did. What about you? Anything interesting? Not necessarily recently, and I don't have permission from clients to discuss cases. And, you know, we have ethical constraints in terms of, of uh, talking about cases. The funnest cases that I had were when I started my career in the public defender's office. And I mentioned earlier, I don't know if that was in our intro or part of this podcast, but I mentioned earlier that I kind of fell into this work. And that's because when I got out of law school, I still wasn't sure that I wanted to work as a lawyer. I didn't particularly enjoy law school, and that's a understatement. That is an understatement. But in any event, uh, when I interviewed with the public defender's office here, I really enjoyed the interview with the chief public defender. I really enjoyed the people in the office. And that was, even though I think I did have an aptitude and, and an interest uh, in criminal law when I went to law school, I think it was more the people because they didn't seem to me like most of the lawyers that I had uh, encountered who were a little too formal and uh, self-impressed. So I end up in the public defender's office, and in the public defender's office, they have you doing preliminary hearings, which are probable cause hearings from day one. Like from day one in that office, they put you in court, which I really enjoyed because that was my concept of being a lawyer. But back in those days, the low man on the totem pole who was me would have to go to the furthest district courts, and Chester County is a big place. Are you going to Pottstown, Oxford? I was going to Oxford, man. And uh, Oxford is the extreme southern part of the state, borders Maryland. And uh, back then, uh, in the olden days, Oxford was not nearly as developed as it is now. It was, it was rural, um, and it had some of the most interesting cases that I've encountered. My, I think that my most interesting case that I had was the aggravated assault by rattlesnake, which uh, to this day I believe was probably the only uh, offense charged that way in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. By rattlesnake? By rattlesnake. Go on. Oh, please. <laughs> so the client... You have us. The client, uh, who I do recall had three names. It was, I think it was Billy Ray something. It, it, it was, uh, I, in any event. Uh, and I do recall the name of the rattlesnake. Oh, the rattlesnake had a name. It did. What was the name? Two-step which is like a country dance, I That's think. That's awesome. Yeah. So, well, it was one of the most beautifully written criminal uh, complaints and affidavits of probable cause that I can recall in my career because they did include the name of the snake, which I thought was not only pertinent uh, but entertaining. So in any event, the fact pattern, and none of this is privileged. This is all laid out in the, in the affidavit of probable cause, was the rattlesnake I'll, charged? 
the rattlesnake was not charged. Mm -hmm. I think the rattlesnake was more of a considered an instrument, uh, an unwitting instrument of crime. But in any event, uh, client uh, initially catches the attention of the public by walking into a uh, video store. Do you know what a video store is? Yes, Blockbuster. Yeah, kind of like Blockbuster. I, I don't know Blockbuster. that it was Blockbuster, but it was one like that in Oxford at the time. So in any event, uh, he walks into the store, and he's carrying a rattlesnake in his hand. But how? Well, I mean... I mean, it, is it around the, the belly of the snake? Is I, it, They is didn't it get that descriptive. I do know that the rattlesnake bit him multiple times, and he almost died. Your so client. I met yes. Yeah, so I imagine at the time that his hand was starting to swell. By the time I represented him, it was at least the size of a softball. But he walks into the video store. He's holding the snake, and he asks the clerk. Um, I envision in a polite fashion. While they, he's being bit by a rattlesnake. If they have any snake movies for he and his friend, that's how it was written. The clerk, I'm sure, told him to get the heck out of their store. They called the state police. The state police, two troopers, uh, one trooper who later, unfortunately, I thought he was a really nice guy, but later got embroiled in a pretty significant case in Philadelphia and, and was convicted. But at the time, he was a, a former military man. He was very, he was a large man, and he was kind of intimidating. He wasn't, like, mean when he would testify. Um, and, you know, back then... Well, back then as a young lawyer, you're just trying not to embarrass yourself, right? I mean, you don't know what you're doing. It's You're right out of law school. Uh, law school doesn't teach you the practicalities Nothing. of being a criminal defense lawyer. And the reason that the public defender's office would send you out to do prelims is you can't possibly mess up a case at a prelim um, because it's a probable cause hearing and the, the judge generally finds probable cause anyway. But in any event... I'm this young lawyer um, and, and this, this trooper who is, uh, every answer would be, sir, yes, sir, sir, no, sir. But back to the video store. They call the police. Police show up, uh, and they see a pickup truck with uh, empty cans of beer all throughout the back of the truck. As I recall, they were Budweiser beers. And the troopers literally follow a trail of beer cans up Route 1 until they encounter my client who is, at this point... What was the beer? It was Budweiser. Budweiser. Yeah. I don't think the snake had any beer, but my client had quite a bit, which probably helped since he had been bitten multiple times by a rattlesnake. So in any event... Do we know where he got the rattlesnake? I do. Um, was that not in the affidavit of probable cause? It was in the affidavit of probable cause. He found it uh, while he was hiking in a public park and thought it would be a good idea to adopt this snake. There's a punchline to that, which I'll get to at the very end. But in any event, he is on Route 1. He's stumbling, probably equal parts intoxication and dying. dying. And the state police pull up their car. Uh, this trooper who, uh, goes up to him and says, Sir, please drop the rattlesnake. I swear to God. Uh, client is not cooperative. Client says... He's driving holding this rattlesnake still? He's not driving. He's walking. Oh, he's walking. And drinking beer and littering. They didn't charge him with that. But they follow the beer cans up Route 1 until they find him stumbling along Route 1. So the, And the troopers pull over. Troopers testifying that he told him to drop the rattlesnake. 
And at that point, uh, the client says, what's the matter? You troopers aren't afraid of snakes, are you? And he whips the tail of the rattlesnakes at the police officers. So the police officer trooper is testifying, and he says, at that point, I you know, unholstered my weapon, I drew on him, and I told him, if you do that one more time, I'm going to drop you. And in our vernacular, drop you means he was going to shoot him, uh, that being the client, not Thank the snake. Thank you for the clarification. It's not really the snake's fault. So in any event, the client, again, is not very cooperative. And the trooper's testifying at this point. We're back in the courtroom, and I'm this young public defender, you know, can't wait to ask this trooper some questions. And the trooper testifies. And next, he threw the snake through the open window of our patrol car. <gasps> so Wait, why was he even in a position to throw a snake into an open window of the patrol car? Did he pull up right next to him? He pulled up there. And I think at this point, they were out of the car. <laughs> I think I asked that question, too. And he said, yes, we were out of the car. But on cross-examination, we'll talk about cross-examination later. You know, people say cross-examination's an art. Uh, yeah, I think that's lawyers being self-congratulatory. But it's an acquired talent, is what I'll say. And at this point, I didn't, hadn't acquired it. And <laughs> I ask him, I'm like, okay, I'm going through, you know, the, the whip and the snake, and they, they tell him not to do it again. And, he sa- and I said, and at this point, Trooper, uh, and he's going, sir, yes, sir, sir, yes, sir. I said, at this point, he throws the snake through the open patrol window. And he says, sir, yes, sir. I said, "Uh, Trooper, did you ask him to do that? And he looked at me like I was the stupidest lawyer, because I was, that he had ever seen. And he said in a booming voice, sir, no, sir. It was the only time that he broke his voice inflection. Um, What what prompted you to even ask that question because in the context of an aggravated assault i didn't know if that was another putting them in fear of bodily injury or whether they had told him to put the snake in the why car. would they ever tell him to put the snake in the know, car? what was your line it, of logic they don't want it like you know slithering down route one and biting somebody else they can keep it in the car i don't know <laughs> But in any event, the, 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 radio, the, the audio isn't you, quite... Um, you, can't, you can't see what just yeah, happened The incredulity just... of the expression I just got. <laughs> but so the way that the, uh, the case concluded is that uh, the client was charged with aggravated assault by rattlesnake under the theory that he put the police in fear of imminent serious bodily injury by wielding a rattlesnake, which is technically true, I suppose. And... The snake, they they included in this affidavit of probable cause that to this day I regret not saving. Um, And the affidavit of probable cause is the narrative that, you know, accompanies the charges. And they included that they had to call a guy, I think it was like from Bob's snake and reptile world, although snakes are reptiles, so it was like wildlife and reptile world, to retrieve the rattlesnake from their patrol vehicle so they couldn't get in the car. The snake was in the car. Uh, and it was released back into the wild. The client, the wild of Oxford, Chester I County. Yeah, I don't know where it was put, but uh, the uh, the uh, client was airlifted twice, I believe, to Christiana Hospital. Almost died. By the time I represented him, which was at least a month later, um, his hand was still extremely swollen. So I am uh, in the hallway at the time. There was a very small district court. And to your question about the, you know, why would he adopt a rattlesnake? And I said to him, and there were other people around at the time, so this is not privilege. I said to him, uh, so client, 
you, you found this snake in the wilderness and you adopted it. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, did you know it was poisonous? And he looked at me and he said, well, not that poisonous. Uh, I, that, that's an example of, I mean, uh, how do I top that? How do I top you that don't. case in my career? You um, don't. No. You should have retired back then. Oh, thank you. No, th- and there were others down there that I won't bore the listeners with, but I, th- at the time, um, my I was uh, single and living in Westchester with a bunch of teachers, and they used to love my Oxford stories. I used to regale them with the stories about the preliminary hearings down in, in Oxford. And then once I you know, started graduating, became like a private practitioner, I was still single living in Westchester, um, it was kind of like a fraternity house. But the point is that they, f- they said, you know what? Ever since you went into private practice, your cases are boring. <laughs> well, let's let the listeners know they're not that boring. No, I don't think they're boring. I don't find them boring at all. But I haven't had any rattlesnake cases right, since then. Right, right. Well, you know, relative to a rattlesnake case, yeah. I, can, I can understand that. But no, I think I find we need them, to tie up this episode. I find them all interesting. They are. They are. Thank you for joining this week's Subject to Cross. Until next time.